Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Howdy, friends. Welcome back to the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. It was so great to shake and howdy with so many folks from around the globe at last week's International Bluegrass Music Association's World of Bluegrass 2023 in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, in addition to seeing so many old friends, met many new ones as well. And it was great to meet so many listeners and fans of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. It was such a blessing. Heard a bunch of great music and just had a wonderful time. If you've never been to IBMA's World of Bluegrass, be sure to do so. Make sure you're a member of the International Bluegrass Music Association as well. If you're a supporter of bluegrass, be sure to support the association that uh, helps raise the profile of bluegrass music worldwide. That's the IBMA, the International Bluegrass Music Association. They have several different membership options, whether you're a professional that works in the industry or you're just a lover of bluegrass music, be sure to become a member of the IBMA. Go to IBMA.org. That's IBMA.org to learn more and join today. Cannot say enough great things about the hardworking folks with the International Bluegrass Music Association. The IBMA supports so many great endeavors, including Bluegrass in the Schools, the IBMA Bluegrass Foundation, which is charitable giving branch of the IBMA, and especially the Bluegrass Trust Fund that helps members of the Bluegrass community in need when tragedy strikes. All this and more, including their annual business conference, an award show, music festival, and more. Uh, learn more at IBMA.org and be sure to join today. Part of last week's World of Bluegrass Business Conference included a couple different panels that uh, I was honored to be asked to sit in on. One of those was on uh, the 50 Years of Bluegrass with Rounder Records. It was a real treat uh, to join the three founders of Rounder. That'd be Ken Irwin, Marion Leighton Levy, and Bill Nallen, and the author of the new book on Rounder Records history, David Minconi. The new book is called Oh, Didn't They Ramble? Tells the story of Rounder Records. You definitely want to check that out. It's a great read. And it was a, it was awesome being with the three Rounder founders on a panel celebrating uh, their contributions to the world of bluegrass. That's what this conversation is about as well. This is part two of a conversation I recorded with Ken Irwin and Marion Leighton Levy of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame two years ago in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, looking back on five decades of Rounder Records. Uh, in part two, uh, we talk about the seminal album Rounder 0044, not only a turning point for Rounder Records, but it marked a uh, turning point in bluegrass music history. Rounder 0044, that's the stock number of the self-titled project from J.D. Crow in the New South, featuring J.D. Crow, Ricky Skaggs, Tony Rice, Bobby Sloan, and Jerry Douglas. We also talk about Ken Irwin when he first heard the voice of Miss Allison Krauss, one of the most famous of the Rounder roster over the course of their entire history. We chat about all this and more in part two of my conversation with Ken Irwin and Marion Leighton Levy at the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame, two of the three founders of Rounder Records. Enjoy. We mentioned Rounder 0044 and J.D. Crow in the New South. and that How was signing J.D. Crow in the New South a turning point in Rounder Records history four years or five years after you guys got started? 
Um, one of the ways is that, um, <clears throat> again, like underachievers everywhere, and, and in a way we were. I mean, we were just starting a record company. We, there were all these others that we really admired. And um, so we were approaching J.D. Crow about doing a banjo record because we thought it's the only way we could uh, get any contact with them at all because they were the hottest thing on the festival Band circuit. album sings yeah. out of the question. Exa- yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Way, way beyond our capacity. And we thought it was a really important thing. J.D. had never done a banjo record, and he was, at that point, um, the, top, the top banjo player out there. And Hugh Sturgill, their manager, was the smart guy here. And, and and he was very smart. I mean, he's, he hadn't taken note of the fact that we were doing records that looked and sounded slightly different and had good liner notes and all of that. But the main thing, as a smart manager that he was concerned with, is if he could do a record of the hottest band on the festival circuit with us that was more like a profit-sharing contract it would be better for them than to do a record and just be like all of the other bluegrass bands on, you know, Rebel was the hot festival band record label at that point. And he was right. They had the gents, they had the scene, they had Ralph. Cliff Waldron and the New Shades of Grass. absolutely. Don't forget all of those. So, I I mean, I think the fact that, and and it completely took us by surprise. The last, I mean, we never thought we would have a shot in hell at doing a J.D. Crow in the New South record. Um, We'd heard them at festivals. We loved them. We knew how important all of these musicians were. And did we know how important they were going to be? Probably not, but we thought they were, I mean, that they were just going to be great. And we we loved the music. Um, But, uh, so he kind of took us for a loop, um, in ter- and we thought about it, and it was like, wow, um, we should do this. Well, we didn't think about it. We just said yes. <laughs> <laughs> just, so this happened. We, we didn't we, have we, to we, think we, about it yeah. in terms of how to make yeah. the contract work, because, yeah. of course, it was completely different from any other contract. What were some ways that it was different? It was more like a profit-sharing arrangement. How so? Uh, I, I, I forget exactly what the breakdown was, but, uh, I mean, it was you know, that essentially they were getting paid more per record. I mean, the royalty was higher. Um, But there were various things. I can't remember if they invested in the um, recording or not. But at any rate, it was like we were obviously paying to put the record out. But then they were sharing in it. And, And to some degree, any artist who becomes more and more important to a record company, as it turned out, that's kind of the way things are done. And I think, you know, I think that um, I think that Hugh also thought that we were young and enterprising and loved the music, but didn't know enough to interfere with what they were doing. Yeah. So they would have um, total artistic control. And um, I think that was that was very appealing. And they were doing new music. Um, and they were trying to get this idea of the New South, and um, they thought it would be good to do it on a different label. And they, you know, they saw that we were, um, I think, um, what um, Bob Kester referred when he was referring to us 
referred to us as young hustlers. Yeah. Um, initially. <laughs> Hippie and, capitalists, uh, young hustlers. You outlaw know. romantics, yeah. travel rousers. Yeah. We just and, got a whole list think, of them. I think that, that you recognize that and, um, and feel that this would be um, really special to us where it wouldn't be as much to it could be just to, another just another, record yeah, another, another you know record and that um that it was worth worth the shot and and it just so you know most i'm sure most of our listeners know that that self-titled jd crow and the new south album which at the time was just called the new south yeah. but uh rounder 0044 yeah. you know Crow, Ricky Skaggs, Tony Rice, Which I Jared discovered Douglas, Bobby yeah. because yeah. you and yeah. in, in you were the person who was the instigator. Yeah. Yes, but yeah, yeah, we, yeah. We, nobody had noticed that it was called the New South. Yeah, it, it 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 ended up only becoming one of, if not the most legendary albums in the history of bluegrass music, as far as a singular album. You know, from arguably the best band lineup since 1946 in bluegrass you know yeah you don't hear people referring to rebel 1536 <laughs> you hear him doing it don't you Marion? yes unfortunately that's true yeah. do, do you yeah. ever if you do you ever get bored in the car and just start rattling off records and seeing if he knows the number the stock no, number no no i don't no i, I think i think you're you. unique there <laughs> i don't but i mean i'm gonna have to start next time i see him in the hall just <laughs> start. No, I start talking about it. things that that neither one that neither one of us has thought about all that much, and then all of a sudden we start thinking about it, and it's like, oh, there's that, and then Ken will say that. It's much like our conversation about the New South title. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we left out something. Okay. Um, we couldn't have. <laughs> um, yeah, we're almost up to 1975. So um, back. Um, Back when we were living um, um, on Willow Ave still, um, the Holy Motor Rounders came and played at the um, Zircon, a little club in, uh, in Somerville. And toward the end of the night, um, um, oh, I better remember that other story too. Okay, sorry. Uh, toward the end of the night, um, Peter said, uh, you know, do you know, any of you have a place where we could stay? No, crash. A crash. Right. And um, very quickly, Steve Weber um, found a place with, um, with a woman, and Peter didn't, but we offered that he could stay with us. And so we did, and he came up, and I think you know, we had um, a mattress on the floor. And, um, but Peter was really taken by you know, seeing the records that we had there, especially we had a poster for Nolan Strong and the Diab Diablos um, who were on Fortune Record and he was just you know he was really taken that we would have that it was just amazed um, and he, we start you know we talked the next day and you know he said you know with this is when there were just the three of us living in the um, no bedroom, three alcove um, apartment that we um, shared with a mouse that would often visit Bill. Um, and he, you know, we talked to him about, um, he said, you know, why don't you, you know, hire some people? And we said, well, we have this collective. He said, look, there are, you know, we didn't want to be bosses. And 
He said, look, there are people that are working in other professions who are music lovers who would love to work with you and work for you. And you feel that that would somehow be demeaning, but now you're preventing them from doing something that they would love to do. And I think that was sort of a turning point in um, from where we were trying to find people who would share our our passion for the music, our taste for the music, the way that we were living um, near the poverty line, and and that things could be different, that we could hire people and that would not be terrible. It wouldn't be a, a negative. Yeah. yeah. And that was a... a um, and again, you know, so you could say that that's a compromise from the ideals that we started yeah. with. But on the other hand, it was realistic and yeah. pragmatic. Yeah. Um, we did have more work than we could do. And um, and we did say, okay, we need to consider this. And maybe it's not, um, it's a compromise, but not a negative compromise. Yeah. Because yeah. there were other people who want to do this, and they don't want to be members of the Rounder Collective. So <clears throat> let's get, let's, let's do this. So, so we did. And that was, but that was one of the things with Peter. The, uh, the other thing with Peter is he also was the first person to say, if you're going to put these records out, if you don't um, actually do some work to publicize them and promote them, <laughs> you're doing the artist a disservice, spoken like an artist, but nonetheless. He was right. Yeah. And um, so I started being more and more involved in that. There was a, another um, chapter a little bit later on with that. We were very interested in a group called Sweet Honey and the Rock, mm-hmm. um, who were a great um, Afro-American uh, a cappella group. Still are. Yeah. And um, we pursued them, and um, Flying Fish are... Um, friendly competitors were too, and they ended up choosing Flying Fish. And I called up Bernice Reagan, um, the leader of the group, and I asked her, you know, why. I wasn't trying to debate it. And she said they were more promotionally oriented than you were. And that was a wake sort up of, call. Uh, yeah. you know, yeah. that was a number of years after yeah. Peter had sort of said the same thing, right. but not. Right. You know, and um, but in this case, there had actually been evidence that we were not doing it as Con- much. concrete yeah. evidence. And so, yeah. you know, an artist who we didn't sign became one of our most important uh, lessons, changes, yeah. and, and lessons and things that you know that did change. That uh, we mentioned the the new South album. That seventy five lineup was just almost like a flash in the sky. But that record, you know, is still lived on 45 years later. How important was the success of that album in um, establishing some more like bluegrass street cred, if you will? I mean, you guys, you guys had had great records before that, but that one reached a level that heck, few records have reached since. But at at that time, it, it became the hot record. That few bluegrass records have reached, you know, before, uh, th- since then. Yeah. Um, uh, exactly. Um, uh, it was huge. I mean, th- it opened the door 
wide in terms of our, you know, having access to other groups and including Boone Creek, you know, and yeah. um, which at the time was a lot of people thought would be the next New South, um, including the, the sort of all-star records, you know, like the Bluegrass Album Band after Tony had gone off to play with David Grisman and doing those, and we were, so it was, it was, it was absolutely huge, you know. Um, and it was so just, I mean, it's one of those things that who knew at the time mm -hmm. that this short-lived group had made a record that was, uh, you know, one for the ages, as yeah. they say. Mm -hmm. yeah. As, as uh, Rounders Bluegrass roster grew and you guys quickly became established as one of, one of the premier bluegrass labels, you know, you're not chasing artists anymore. They started chasing you. What were ways that you guys? I don't. I don't know if that was the case. Really? Yeah, I think we were always pursuing um, people that that we liked. But Daniel yeah. is right that yeah. many people pursued us yeah. at that point that weren't, for the most part, the people that we were interested in. Yeah, we remained interested in essentially developing, uh, and and it, this wasn't a conscious um, decision, but we were kind of most interested in a particular, if if not aesthetic, it was sort of, you know, uh, the iconoclastic um, 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 instrumentalists. And so new acoustic music that, you know, was as it was called for about five minutes or so, was born. And, uh, you know, what Tony was doing and what David Grisman were doing and so forth was really important to us. But at the same time, we also still had a taste for... Um, traditional bluegrass and partly because of Hazel's influence and her relationship with Ken. Yeah. Um, she really sort of always made sure, Ken and she always made sure, that we heard about and tried to sign and work with bands like JMB. So, and there's nobody more, you know, traditional than the yeah. Johnson Mountain Boys. So it was like the antithesis um, uh, of of uh, 0044. Yeah, or Bella Fleck or yes. Rice or yeah. Tony Trishka. Right, yeah. exactly. So it was like trying to do the best of the music in, in terms of very interesting aesthetics that was a pretty broad range. But we pursued them more than they pursued us. What were... What were some ways that you guys evaluated the bluegrass bands that you would sign at a certain time? Like, what are what are things you looked for? What were were there any sort of um, characteristics, requirements, qualifications, or, or or even just you know benchmarks that you were used to evaluate artists before you signed them to Rounder? Particularly I, in the bluegrass field. Yeah, I don't think that's particularly changed over the years. Um, we looked for people whose music we really liked and thought that it would hold up over over time. We wanted to work with people who we liked and that we liked their representatives, if there were any. And um, we wanted to, at least initially, um, work with projects that we thought we could at least break even. And then as we gained employees, that would make some money. Shh, I've got a secret. My name is Santana Mullins, 
Daniel Mullins's wife, and for the last year, I've been stealing from him. Don't tell him, but I've been using a shampoo and conditioner from Samson's Hair Care. I noticed that even at the end of the day, Daniel's hair was still soft to the touch and smelled better than mine, so I had to sneak and give it a try. And I'm glad that I did. I have fallen in love. It's the only brand of shampoo and conditioner I've found that holds their scent all day while leaving my hair feeling soft and well-nourished. If you want to see for yourself, visit samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save on your order. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. Ladies, be sure to buy your man Samson's shampoo and conditioner. You'll both thank me. And now back to Walls of Time. You, you mentioned Hazel. One thing that is super cool about Rounder, and I'm going to assume this might go back to your guys' propensity for counterculture values, is you guys were intentional and have remained over your, your tenure, 50 plus years, intentional about... Um, having strong bluegrass women on your roster. You know, you can kind of go down the list of most popular, you know, women bluegrass stars and almost all of them, if not all of them, really broke through on Rounder Records. Yeah, if you take a look at the female vocalist of the year, I don't yeah. remember quite what it was, but it's something like the first 10 years were all, yeah. all, all Rounder women. I mean... I, Going through, you know, obviously Hazel and Alice really kind of firing that first shot. Well, you but, might even start with Olabel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, two certainly one. has made. Uh, <laughs> she certainly, uh, and, and I did the liner notes for oh, oh, two one. But anyhow, she, you know, she wrote great songs that Del McCurry recorded. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, when we were working with Del, and those yeah. those were my first pitches. That's an area that that I've always taken great pride and really enjoyed was finding songs and getting them to artists. And we had seen Ola Bell at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival and she did High in a Mountain. And I immediately heard that as, as Dell, And I mentioned it to him and he said, oh, I know Ola Bell. And, uh, <laughs> and um, then he got in touch with Ola Bell and... Uh, and got <laughs> High in a Mountain and also Fear Not that were both on that uh, first record. Those were my first two, you know, sort of pitches. And then um, I think I, I think I pitched um, Weary Hobo on that uh, album too. See, you, yeah. you know, we heard Ola Bell, Hazel Nallis. I mean, but even later years, Allison Krauss, Rhonda Vincent, yeah. Lynn Morris, Alicia Nugent. I mean, that just generationally, yeah. you know, you you guys have Wilmily, Wilmily, yeah. yeah. And and I would um, Claire Lynch, uh, and, yeah, Claire Lynch. Yeah. I mean, and and a lot of that. I mean, I give Ken um, a great deal of credit. I mean, we were aware of the fact, and and you used to remark on the fact that. There were so few women playing in the bluegrass bands when we were first selling records at bluegrass yeah. festivals in the early 70s. But uh, right around that time, there started being more women who were starting to play. And Ken, partly through Hazel, but mostly on his own, particularly with people like Claire Lynch, um, you know, just maintained a very 
lengthy, uh, good correspondence with them as they developed, in some cases from the time that they were very young. Um, and, um, and it was something that we were aware of at the time that it was going to change the music. And, uh, you know, Hazel had, had talked about how hard it is as a woman singing in a bluegrass band because of the different, um, the different essentially, you know, range. Yeah. And how hard that was to sort of get people to sort of adapt things yeah, yeah. for women's voices and stuff at the same time, and um, so at the same so we're thinking, wow, this is a new thing in bluegrass, and at the same time, it's bringing people into it who've never been involved before. So we were just you know totally excited and and very um, enthusiastic about that, and and luckily there were many women kind of coming up and discovering the music and wanting to do this on their own at the same time as as much as we liked uh for example um the west coast um um um, that very traditional guy that um Kathy Callick and um, and uh, Ray and Vern. Yeah, Vern, Vern and Ray. Ray. Vern and Ray. We, I flipped it. <laughs> we loved Vern and Ray, and then at the same time, you find out that people like um, um, uh, Kathy Callick and uh, Laura Lewis, Lewis, Lewis yeah. were. You know, it's like oh, it's just a, it, you know. So it's we didn't do every single woman that we heard of, but uh, yeah. and, and but on the other hand, there were so many. So in other words, it was kind of happening at the same time that we were there and the door was open to make these records. So it's serendipity, as and they you're, say. I'm sure you're, at the time these opportunities started presenting themselves, uh, I'm sure your counterculture radar was just going through the roof. Like, this is awesome. Like, you can... Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, you can... Yeah, yeah like, that's... That's great. That's a- we thought of ourselves as revolutionaries, and this was something that was a part of revolutionizing the music. Yeah. Would, would you like to um, reminisce about that show that Hazel and Alice did for the um, Folk Song Society of Greater Boston? <laughs> Not sure that I remember it that well, actually. There was I do haste. remember that they did it in the Folk Song Society, which was always sort of like this, and oh, people very folk revivalish Boston area. You can only imagine how, and there's a perfect uh, adjective that the English use how twee this whole thing like this, and they're sitting on the floor, their heads are thrown back. It's like you and McCall singing, you know. <laughs> but they, 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 the Folk Song Society of Greater Boston booked. Um, Hazel and Alice into a, um, I think it was a concert at um, at a Harvard um, yeah. building, and um, they had no idea what they did. The word had gotten out. It was the burgeoning women's movement, and the place was absolutely packed. With it lesbians. Was, it, it was, prob- <laughs> it was prob- probably 85 to 90 percent women. <laughs> They were screaming and yelling. And, um, <laughs> this is not the typical folk song society no. concert. And, and, and it, even was, it, it was almost like a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance <laughs> Kid thing of, who are those people? <laughs> <laughs> well, and not only that, Hazel and Alice were themselves taken aback. I mean, and Hazel spoke to Ken about this. Mm-hmm. I mean, because this was a time um, that the women's liberation movement, the radical wing, 
which I was involved in. Um, and no Hazel, shock there, and right? And Hazel and Alice weren't necessarily yeah. uh, involved in. And so all of these women, um, and many of them were lesbians, because uh, there was a strong, almost lesbian separatist part of the radical women's movement at that time. And uh, and they all became massive, massive Hazel and Alice fans. So, they, so in fact... There really wasn't women's music at that point. Right. Yeah. You have to understand yeah. that. Did, right. did, did Hazel and Alice, like you said, they they weren't from the far left side of no. things that, like you were. They, you know, um, Hazel, did, Hazel referred to herself as a humanist. As a humanist. Yeah. Which, but, but on the other hand, she's being a little, uh, she was being a little facile there because the fact is Hazel, because of being from West Virginia, because there's left and there's left. There's left, in my opinion, there's even more of a true left from the coal mining um, unionizing movement. Yeah. And Hazel was very much a part of that. So it was different from different. the kind of urban college-educated people that were involved in, say, the anti-war movement and so forth. But she was definitely true left in that sense. Yeah. Um, and um, so, But on the other hand, for ex- what Ken was saying about there was no mu- women's music back then, and when it started being made, there was, for example, this is a perfect example of that. Um, Michigan, for many, many, many years, had a women's music festival. Hazel and Alice were invited to it. Men were not allowed to attend it. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and they couldn't get away with that, ultimately. Yeah. So, in fact, they stopped holding it uh, relatively recently. But this went on for a very long time. It was in Michigan. It was a women's music festival. Women's, you know, like W-O-M-Y-N or something like that. I never actually went to it. But um, it, it, it was the kind of thing that Ken was talking about. People just going crazy. They love this music and singing along with the Hazel and Alice songs. And Hazel would be like, I can't believe it. They don't. The words to the song. <laughs> well, that that that's you know that's my point. Like you know, coal mining communities like where Hazel's from, that's com- might as well be a different planet yeah. if you're going to go to yeah. you know liberal pockets of New England. Yeah. So how, how, how about d- Harvard? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how did they handle becoming such you know touch points for a uh, for for cultures and communities that. W- were radically different than their own. Well, don't forget, Hazel and Alice are two very, very different people. Um, this was much more familiar to Alice than it was to Hazel. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, Hazel, from having lived in Baltimore for a long time, um, and even though she was, you know, working class and working to support herself, um, was involved with, um, you know, playing music with people like Mike Seeger and and then Alice after Mike and Alice got married. So she had some, you know, with the part of the liberal part of the progressive yeah. left, um, had some some contact with that. But in terms of the more radical, it was. It was kind of an awakening, a rude awakening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just it was, just as their music was for the Folk Song Society of Greater Boston. Yeah. Oh, uh, another of the uh, leading ladies in bluegrass history is someone who's had a, a, a lengthy connection with Rounder, and that's Miss Allison Krauss. And I know that you. You guys uh, listened to demo tapes that had been shipped in to the label. If I remember what, 1984, an unassuming demo tape came in and you heard something special. What, what, uh, 
What we can you tell me about about that story of the first time you heard Alison Krauss's voice? Um, I was listening on my. Um, there's a we had a little porch over our garage, and um, I was sitting on the steps and. Uh, I was sort of half sunning myself, and I had some lemonade or water out there while listening and writing notes to people, and um, finally got to the tape, which was uh, one of a group called Classified Grass. At the time, um, I believe she was in two bands, Union Station and um, and Classified Grass, and the one that was sent was from Classified Grass, and... Um, it was um, a, a pretty good group, um, and uh, it was back when you didn't have you had fast forward, but it wouldn't go directly to the next song. So I, I just listened. You know, it was um, very nice day, and I listened. And then the fourth song, um, Allison sang lead. The others. Um, the um, the guys in the band were were singing, and Allison played fiddle and um, sang some harmony. She's like what, fourteen? Uh, thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah, and um, I just heard her voice and and loved it, and um, that was the only song on the tape that that she sang lead on, and um, I. Uh, got in touch with, I wrote back to um, the manager who was, if I remember correctly, the um, mother of the mandolin player and asked for some more information. And she um, gave Dave Samuelson as a reference. Um, Dave, um, as many of your listeners know, was the head of, um, later, the head of Puritan Records, who did those great uh, Josh Graves and Kenny Baker records, yeah, yeah. among others. Um, and he, I, I got in touch with him, and he said, yeah, she's, um, she's really great. She, um, you know, she can be a... You know, a Stefan Grappelli or a Joe Venuti. Um, we don't know where she's going to go, but she'll be be great. And um, he got me um, her contact information. And I called her up and actually got to speak to her. And she you know, was very, very mature for her age. And I said, you know, we'd like to hear some more. There was only one song um, on there. You know, could you send me some more? And within a week, I got another cassette, and I think there were six or seven songs. Most of them were um, John Pinnell originals, because he was working with her and the other kind band. of her mentor and, at the and time, Union, yeah, yeah. A mentor and friend, and and uh, he was um, the head of uh, Union Station. And um, I was, you know, really impressed. The songs were really good. She was singing really well. And so I brought it to Marion and Bill, and they said, you know, go ahead. And um, I think Could you hear what he heard right out, of the, right out of the gate with her that young? He was very, very um, miserly with the tapes. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, I, if we heard it, it was only very briefly. He kept them under, you know, 
they were under his watch. So Ken uh, told us about it and probably played it for, uh, you know, in the office a time or two. Or so. I mean, not in the office because we were still living in the sharing in the same, sharing the same house at the time. But yeah, so no, it, it was more like, you know, we heard about it and then started hearing again that she'd won the Kentucky Fried Chicken. Well, no. that, that was later. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, basically that. This, it, then hype started coming there's out. There's this amazing. Yeah. There's this amazing fiddle yeah. player, and yes, she is really. But you left out the part about what Dave Samuelson said about her voice. On purpose. Okay. Oh come on. He said she can be Giovanuti, she can be Stefan Grappelli, she can be anyone she wants to be, but don't have her sing too much. Because she was she was thirteen, and yeah. Um, and in other words, I think he was her, sort of her fiddle playing, playing was singing. probably more that, evolved at right. that point. To- totally, and and yeah. wasn't if if I understand correctly, the original assumption was that she was going to record a fiddle album. No, 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 no talk about doing a fiddle record. So the, the, the par- parallel the Crow story, right? Yeah, where we did want to do a banjo record, <laughs> and we yeah. we probably. We probably asked that one's true, right? We, we probably <laughs> asked him every, you know, yeah. every couple of years after that. Yeah, and uh, he never, he never wanted to do one. Yeah, and I'm glad that he didn't. It was Bill who would say, "Well, what about the J.D. Crow?" I would bring it up, I or I'd bring it and, up to Steve Chandler, and yeah. I would and say, would and I would say, "Well, I'm glad he's not doing it because I didn't feel that I felt that that was not what he was he was into. Yeah, yeah. that was not, you know, his so thing." So when, so you get a young Alice Cross, by the time she recorded her first album for Rounder, how old was she, 16, 17? Not that old. Yeah. Not even that Probably old. Probably would yeah. have been maybe 15. Yeah. I think we signed the contract. Met her, um, heard the music when she was 13. And then um, I think signed her when she was 14 and probably um, 15 when it came out is my guess. And... Did people catch on to what a, you know, generational talent she was at the first record? And how many records did it take before people really are like, okay, this gal's really different? Um, I think one of the things that's kind of remarkable about Allison's career is that, and, and it's thank heavens for this being the case, it developed more slowly. Mm-hmm. It, it, I mean, she was a musician's musician. Mm-hmm. So there's no question that from the first moment that people heard her, particularly other musicians, it was like, she's just a staggeringly, astounding, amazing talent. Yeah. Um, but in terms of record sales and stuff, she was not only still young, um, but, you know, she was still getting her, you know, still finding what musicians she wanted to play with, what material she wanted to record, and so forth. So even after she moved to Nashville. So it was not like um, the first couple of records, you know, were like, it was not at all like the George Thorogood situation. Yeah, I think I think that the, that the first record had sold something like 7,500 copies before, yeah. you know, when the when the second one came out very modest yes yeah yeah i mean I would, th- th- those numbers ironically would be very significant these days <laughs> with the lack of physical copies of yeah. product that move and and we're still extremely respectable even back then because that was a period when bluegrass in general you know prior to um oh brother yeah was not selling the way it did after well after allison had 
you know the uh, what was the, the the Brad Paisley thing, whiskey's Whiskey lullaby, lullaby yeah. and and had the um, and, uh, the album that sold right after that that was kind of like the a peak for her, but bluegrass itself was in a trough at the yeah. time. And so um, even her selling 7,500 was very respectable by bluegrass standards. When? Back then. When did she hit, in her career arc, when did, when did, when did it hit the tipping point where she's not just, she's not just moving product that's good for bluegrass. She's, she's just going gangbusters. When, when did that tipping point occur? Probably was with, when you say nothing at all. Yeah. Which was a, a compilation. A and, Keith Whitley tribute album, right? Yep. Well, that was that was the song from the Keith Whitley tribute yeah. album. Yeah. But we had retained rights to it, and so we had our version, and um, and RCA, I guess, had their version. So they were, you know, it was sort of like double promoting. You retained right. Yes, yeah, so that album was a kind of... Uh, that was the Now That I Found You collection yeah. that had her version on yep, it, right? Yep, 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 exactly. Good call on retaining rice to that yep. one. <laughs> <laughs> Which was not true with a lot of Allison's things because you were asking about, you know, um, you know, her career reaching a plateau. Well, even before that happened, one of the things she liked about being with us is if anyone you know, asked her to do something with them, whether it was Yo-Yo Ma or James Taylor or whatever. She knew that she had permission to do that. She didn't really even ask. She went ahead and did it. Yeah. Half the time we're thinking, wish we knew about that so we could at least have sent out press releases and so forth. But Versus think, if she's think, with a, a, a major corporate label that the red tape would be exhausting yeah. and those opportunities yeah, but I, but wouldn't I think, be as I think a lot fruitful. of... Um, a lot of the positive on that um, should be attributed to Denise Stiff, who was managing yeah. Allison yeah. and looked after her very well. And she um, was, uh, I think, instrumental in making sure that um, that uh, we and Allison, um, yeah. depending on the situation, uh, did control the, the rights to that. Yeah. How, how important was it that once... Allison, you know, quote unquote, exploded. Let's just we can we can yeah. we can put it that way. Um, whereas a lot of other artists that you see that are on an independent label reach a huge milestone, will oftentimes move to a more traditionally quote corporate unquote label. major label, yeah. corporate label, yeah. you know, whatever. Uh, she didn't, and it's it's one of the most uh, unusual things that people talk about when they look at her career that she she didn't do that once how what did that mean to you guys that she stuck with you even after she reached those milestones well i I think it's it's also significant that most of our agreements were for one record at a time really yes really because no major label would ever have done no and and i know that you know the real it's you can anybody can look up a discography and see that her records went solo band, solo band, yeah, yeah, solo yeah. band, solo band. And that so was I her, just assumed and it that was, was her preference. So I just assumed that was part of your guys's contract with her. But it was that was, it was her, her choice. Yep. Her choice. Yep. Yep. 
So one record at a time, and she's and she continually returned around her. So that had to mean a lot to you guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, her attitude, as we've seen written, is um, if if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was um, you know a significant amount of trust. She she earned it. You know, she was making. You know, we we made comments on the um, early records. I. Um, I mentioned, I think after the first record that I thought, or during, that I thought some of her solos could be closer to the melody, and um, a year later she agreed, um, which is very unusual for you know for an artist to say something. But Allison was and is um, someone who learns from experience. Um, she's you know I think she learns from. Um, virtually everything that she does, and she's uh, she's a great student, and you know, a student of the music, and learned and went way beyond um, what you know what we knew, and uh, she knew what songs worked for her, and uh, we had you know tremendous respect and um, and supported her in in all of it, and I. You know, you'd have to speak to her, but I think yeah. that she would, you know, wonder if um, if that would be the case elsewhere. She had a situation around that time where um, some versions of When You Say Nothing at All came out with a duet with Keith Whitley yeah, yeah. after after she had told people that she didn't want that to happen. And, um, you know, she knew that something like that would never happen with us. Yeah. Um, why do you think that's a good lesson for any maybe young artist that are tuned in that sometimes, like, the grass isn't always greener? You know, like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know... Sometimes that's a that's a good lesson to learn, and it's a good one to not have to learn the hard way. But it's it's an individual artist. It's an individual time. Yeah, things yeah. are different. Oh, totally. You know, I was just uh, a couple days ago. I heard that you know um, a very good college basketball player who came out early um, and you know hooked up with a team was let go, and he. You know, he had two more years of college that he could have, you know, improved himself, and he jumped too early. So it's. Um, but on the other hand, there's ones that that's 100 percent the right decision for absolutely. them to make at that yeah, time, yeah, and right. they yeah. become a hall of famer. And, yeah. and the other thing is that it's a completely different time in terms of the way um, the business is organized. I mean, the record industry itself. I mean, I don't mean just because there are no retail stores anymore. And it's hard. I, it would be hard for any artist to learn much from somebody's career that started at that time, um, I think, at this point, because they have completely different challenges. If there is one essential item that bluegrassers need to take with them to a festival, it is a good lawn chair. We all need a lawn chair. 
We've all had problems when we've had a crappy lawn chair. Enter Lawn Chair USA. Lawn Chair USA are made in the USA folding aluminum lawn chairs. They are the number one supplier of folding lawn chairs. By folding lawn chairs, I mean the old school ones, you know, the ones that were really sturdy, the ones that don't feel like you're sitting in a hammock, the ones that don't tear, the ones that don't wind up at the end of the road at the end of the season. I'm talking a solid Made in the USA, well-built lawn chair. LawnchairUSA.com slash walls of time for your new favorite lawn chair. And trust me, it's one you can use to sit on the edge of your seat at your next bluegrass festival. Use code walls of time to save 10% at Lawn Chair USA. And now back to walls of time. You know, you talk about some of the changes in the music industry and particularly for a record label that's been around for you know, 50 plus years, you know, changing from records to tapes, tapes to CDs, like changing yeah. formats isn't going to completely upend the Apple cart too much. Right. But by the time you get to digi- the digital era, particularly the streaming world that we've been in for about the past decade, how much did that change the way Rounder operated and did business and had to, you know, rethink and reprioritize things? Well, I think by the time that that happened, we had already sold the company. And that became the um, the responsibility of the Nashville rounder. It so, kind of became someone else's problem. It, 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 yeah. it, I was going to say a challenge that they would have to face and that we were, were frankly relieved that we wouldn't have to because I don't think we would have handled it very well. Um, uh, we were accustomed to doing things in our own way. Yeah. Uh, and it's very difficult to, uh, most of the, a, a lot of the relationships now have less to do with music and more to do with, um, other, you know, kinds of, well, just corporate kinds of stuff. You know, you mentioned selling the company that, and we, we alluded to that earlier, what went into that decision? Um, the fact that it was getting increasingly difficult to be able to support the company in the form that it had grown into. We would have had to completely start a, com- a new company, essentially. You're kind and, of a victim of your own success. Yeah. And, and we would, I mean, it would have meant leaving, letting a lot of people go. It would have meant, you know, working. And, and at that point, it was basically also our only real way to retire. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, when, when, we, when we thought about it and when we started discussing it, you know, there were three things that we wanted. Um, we wanted to protect as many of the jobs of our staff who we felt very positively about. Um, both um, in terms of their um, work and as people. Um, We wanted to have a continuation of the Rounder label and legacy, and we wanted to, after all these years, to be able to retire in a 
you know, in a way that um, was comfortable. Yeah. Not have to worry about our future yeah. in an old folks' home, you know? Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll wind up in an old folks' <laughs> yeah. home anyway, but yeah. I mean, at least it'll be a hopefully comfortable. Yeah. But, but yes, all of those things that, that, um, that, that can, it, absolutely. And we um, were blessed. I mean, really, the Concord relationship has been in stark contrast to the way most major labels have acquired independent labels, yeah. to put it mildly. It's also been in stark contrast to the way that most independent labels have sort of uh, changed along the way, but almost always everybody is gone and then they move someplace else and it's one person in an office in uh, a corporate structure someplace. So we're very fortunate that we've had some continuity um, and as we've gotten older, obviously we have less control. Um, I mean, we have you know control over a couple of things and things that have to do with you guys have your legacy releases, cons consultant <coughs> more yeah. type roles yeah. now, right? We did that for a long time, and we still have a relationship that allows us to sort of put out a couple of records, um, at least with them. Of That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Of things that we care about, yeah. And in the meantime. Uh, the people, in in a way, are as important as the records themselves. And John Verant continued not only through that uh, transition, but then headed up the Nashville office in the beginning. John Verant was our um, our rounder. president, and we yeah. are, we usually referred to him as the fourth rounder. Yeah. yeah. And so some of our best folks moved to Nashville. I think you might have known Matt Miller, um, I think so. who was in the Nashville office for a long time, and Liza Levy, and so forth. So. Um, not my daughter, by the way. <laughs> so uh, so it, it was really, in many ways, uh, you know, the best of all possible worlds we, we felt. Yeah, it, it's, <clears throat> it, it's always impressed me that, you know, since the acquisition, that even within, you know, a more corporate structure, Rounder has still been able to maintain its own identity and still yeah. be Rounder Records, mm -hmm. even though that, you know, behind the scenes things are a little yeah. different. And they're proud of that. And, and frankly, for um, a, a company that really does not know much about the rounder world, um, they've been extremely not just respectful, but continued to do things that that would be in keeping. Uh, like I'm really, I don't know if you've heard of Amethyst Kia. This is not Bluegrass, although she did go to the Bluegrass program at ETSU. Yeah, yeah. You know, someone that, would, that we had nothing to do with her signing. That was John Strom's um, uh, uh, signing out of Nashville. And I feel that that's something we would have done. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so there are numerous things like that that um, we're just really happy to, to see that it's going that way aside from things that we have our, uh, you know, still have our fingerprint on. Yeah. yeah. Um, looking at five decades or half a century, man. Yeah, I that's know. a lot. Yep, it's a long time. We're, of, we're in our second half century. <laughs> 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 of uh, of Round Records, what what do you think the the legacy of of the label started by these outlaw romantics is? <laughs> um, I, I, it's it's. Well, we'll let uh, David Menconi tell you that. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that's his job, not ours. No, I mean it is. You know, obviously. Every person who starts a label probably has some notion of what they hope to achieve. I feel that we achieved all that at least I personally wanted to achieve. And, and it, in my, uh, I mean, it's 
the same as it was in the beginning, the preservation of a lot of endangered music, um, the continuation through contemporary artists who were influenced by some of the same music that we love and, and grew up with and tried to preserve. So there's a continuity. Um, and obviously it's a large catalog, over 3,000 records. So it's a broad range of music. And um, I, I mean, we were Americana before there was Americana. We were roots music before there was roots music. And we continued through all of that. And hopefully that music will live on and someone will call it someday something else. But as long as they listen to it and enjoy it and say, holy cats, I still love their stuff, then that's the legacy. From Lead Belly to Longview, it's yeah. all there. Right? <laughs> and, and, and along the way, I think we, we right helped. Line. <laughs> you know, I think we um, we tried to keep to some standards in terms of things we discussed before, in terms of you know quality of um, the music, um, in terms of, of the artwork, in terms of the liner notes, in terms of. Um, helping to um, educate um, people as far as uh, both Mary and I have been um, um, board members. Um, I was a board member of Folk Alliance. We were um, founders And I of, was of the Blues Foundation yeah, yeah. and an advisory board member at the Rhythm, the, the Rhythm and Blues Foundation. But And yeah. an advisory at Smithsonian Folkways when, uh, when they started. Yeah. Um, started out and um, um. so we've had good lives doing all of this and and I still like to think um, that in um, if you were to use the Greel Marcus um, um, you know essentially thinking about an esoteric history or a secret world of our kind of music of that old weird America that uh, a lot of the counterculture and radical politics that inspired us um, when we were, during those formative years when we were coming to consciousness of the world, is also in there too. Uh, I think it is, regardless of whether people don't need to know about that, but it's there for those who have the ears to hear. Yeah, yeah. Um. As a as folks that have been on the, the the cutting edge of so many different movements in bluegrass and so many different mm-hmm. changes and waves that have come throughout the genre's history since you guys started, yep. w- where do you see the future of bluegrass going right now? Like what 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 sort of what sort of things do you see coming? And down you the know pipe? what you can uh, Ken can say what he thinks, but in my opinion, you know that better than we do. Because we can't have the minds of people who are 25 or 50 years younger than we are. And frankly, I, looking at um, people that I really love right now and whose music I really like, look at someone like a Sierra Farrell. I have no idea. She's where, so great. <laughs> I have no idea where she came from. I have no idea where she's going. And I don't think anybody does. Probably she doesn't herself any more than Tony Rice did, I mean, at a certain yeah. point in his very young years. And, and one of the things that's happening now is there are influences that would never have been influences because people have access to um, a lot of 
not just music, but other things culturally that people didn't have access to. So the world was a lot narrower back then, even though our minds were big, but it was not, I mean, you know, as we were saying before, there were no cell phones, there was no internet, there, you know, all of that stuff hadn't, and all of that makes a huge, huge difference and has had a huge impact and will probably have an even bigger impact going forward. I mean, look at a Billy Strings. Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. no question that what he's playing is bluegrass music, but there is no question that the reason that people love it isn't because of its being bluegrass per se. Yeah. It's all of the other stuff, the psychedelic stuff. And yeah, the, yeah. The Grateful Dead influence. Even though if you if you didn't see him, you didn't see cover the album, you just pressed play yeah. to someone that was uninitiated, they'd be like, oh, well, that sounds, you know, like a... A bluegrass guy, you know. I'm saying, you know, yeah. like to a point, you know, up to a point. That his his he has a more traditional voice. It doesn't sound necessarily like a, you know, a pop voice, you know, and the is right picking Except, and yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I I really I think it's um it's it's a mystery. I should have known you were a Sierra Farrell fan. Mm-hmm. I should have known. It, well, Ken, I mean, as Ken a and I have woman seen, like yeah. you, you should have <laughs> <should've laughs> known. Ken and I have seen two live music shows since the pandemic, and one of them she was playing. Uh, it was Sierra playing in um, uh, Exeter, New Hampshire, in a place called the Word Barn that normally holds poetry slams as much as music, and uh, that had all of the these windows open and stuff. So it was like a great place to hear you know live acoustic music um so that was so we got to hear a set there of her but um and then we heard bella white and then we heard bella white at the same venue but in their outside location Mm -hmm. so it was well it was but it's not even a huge meadow it was more like somebody's lawn (laughs) (laughs) so it was great but i mean that there's an i mean there's someone who is a really wonderful songwriter but a very different songwriter Mm. than anyone we would have known when we were say running philo records my wife and i love sierra we saw her at merle fest two weeks ago yeah. we're obsessed with her now yeah. we bought her vinyl and yeah. no. <laughs> she's definitely one of a kind she's yeah. she is yeah. she is and it, i think i think in terms of legacy i think we've been so immersed in it that i think it's for others to say yeah um what what the legacy is or will be yeah and that's why I said David Manconi yeah. in terms of legacy and yeah. and you in terms of future, because y- you guys are sort of, it, it is more for you to say than, than for us. Uh, she uh, she kind of answered, uh, your turn came. Where do, where do you see, you know, you, you guys have been on the cutting edge of so many different movements in bluegrass and so many different trends. Where do you see the future going? I don't. You don't? I don't. Um, I, as I think I always have, I like what I like, and I like the artists that I like, and I don't think about where they're going or where they've been, but do we like them? Do we feel we can work with them? Do we feel the music will hold up and is um, high quality? And... You know, whether that's going to be um, the Gibson brothers doing a more, uh, a somewhat more contemporary bluegrass record, or whether it's David Davis doing a tribute to Roy Acuff, um, 
in our case, you know, hopefully putting out Hazel Dickens' last record. Um, so there are certain things that we still need to complete yeah. in terms of, yeah, yeah. but, but, you know, but in terms of seeing that as, as the future, no, we don't necessarily obviously see it as yeah. that way. We see yeah, it as yeah. completing our own legacy in a sense. So it would be presumptuous to say we see that as, as the future. And I agree with Ken. I, and we don't really see the future, not in the sense of saying, I see no future, yeah. but just in the sense of saying, we don't see it. We don't have a crystal ball can very um, articulately said, you know, what our values are. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of knowing what, it's not just what we like, though. It's, it's, I mean, because you're right about that. We also do like a lot of things that influence stuff. So it's like a larger context than that. And you can't predict the future unless you can see that larger context. And right now, nobody can, I don't think. And at the end of the day, 50-plus years later, you guys still are outlaw romantics that like what you like and want to do it the best way you know how. Yeah. I mean, initially— What about a legacy to leave than that, you know? (laughs) You know, honestly. I I, I remember for myself that— my goal early on was to have one record that would be considered in the top 10 of some category. And I felt we hit that with the Don Stover Things in Life record. And have That's another really... rounder classic. Yeah. What number is that one? Oh, 14. Oh, four. oh man. <laughs> you guys at the same time. Wow. Um, so, you know, considering that we we didn't really have any other um we never had monetary goals um we wanted to do the best for our artists that we could um we've you know we feel we've you know we've had a good life it's gone way beyond any of our expectations oh, yeah. totally. you know we've had uh, wonderful relationships with Lots of people in the in the bluegrass community, Including especially yourself. with our artists. Yeah, Absolutely. no, I mean, you know, many of the people people that we not only like the best but respect a lot, and mm-hmm. and um, you know, that's you, you can't ask for more than that. Yeah, yeah. Some, something that we know, that we didn't really talk about, but this, you know, you'd fit in there too. With um, is that um, this was really a, a venture of. Um, you know, of ourselves and a lot of artists and a lot of friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, people who, you know, the we didn't mention the Walt Saunders, we mentioned Archie Green, you know, the Ralph Renslers, the Mike Seegers, you know, we could go on and on yeah. of people who came up with ideas, um, you know, told us about artists, people who supported us, people who um, let us sleep on their floors or their couches or whatever it's um you know we're we're sort of like an extended um community that uh that happened to be a business yeah yeah and you know i i love what you said about how about the only kind of a goal that you had was just to have a record that would wind up in you know a top stand 10 list the te- of stand yeah. the test yeah. of time yeah. in a particular area yeah. of music yeah. in a particular area. Yeah. Yeah. yeah music that you like that somehow other people ended up liking too you know and then 
you have, you know, after a 50 plus year career, 50 plus Grammy albums that were recorded that have the rounder stamp of approval on the back. Yeah. Like that's that that would had to probably be the farthest thing from your yeah. comprehension back in 1970. Yeah. yeah. So. I don't know if we knew about Grammys. I don't think then. we did. <laughs> <laughs> Hello folks, my brother-in-law Daniel introduced me to Samson's Dead Sea Clay two months ago and I've been using it ever since. It's the only product I've found that not only gives me that moldable matte finish I've been looking for, but also leaves my hair feeling healthier when I wash it out. So if you're like me and want healthy stylish hair, go to samsonshaircare.com and use promo code bluegrass to save 10% and order Samson's Dead Sea Clay today. And now back to Walls of Time. All right, let, let's let's play a game. I'm not sure that they even existed. <laughs> I mean, they probably did. But. Let's play again. Uh, uh, play a game. Uh, let's. Uh, yeah, let, you're 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 starting to lose it too. Uh, here we go. <laughs> t- t- Tony Rice, Manzanita. Uh, ninety-two. Ooh. I'm not checking any of these, so he could just be just throwing out lot number some. But he seems pretty confident. No, no, so. he he is. Yeah, and the, and yeah. the earlier one was eighty-five. When I was an intramural ref, they said, whether you're right or wrong, just say it confidently, and they're not going to argue with you. That's so. what they say about politics. Yeah. yeah, there you go. There you go. If you're going to lie, say it like or you believe George it. George Costanza would say, yeah. it's not a lie if you believe it. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Um, uh, J&B, Live at the Old Schoolhouse. Oh. Wow. One. Oh two nine three, see he's not. He, he's that. not sure on that. He's not no, confident yeah, that's about it. Right. That's We're questioning. Later on. I want to look it up. We, right? had, we had computers by then. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh. And left out Art Minius. Oh Art, yeah. Art Minius is the person who, who said, Ken Irwin's about the only person I know who's not on a computer. <laughs> and that 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 day I turned on a computer. I didn't know how to use it, but I turned it on. <laughs> And now he's the email king, right, Mary? <laughs> uh, the first Longview record. Um, wow. Oh, I didn't tell you about that. Bring it that on. That wasn't the lick. But um, Hazel and I <laughs> He's went... trying to buy time to think of that number, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. You're on to him, Daniel. You're on to him. <laughs> that looks like Mary would say, oh, is it there? Those trees pretty. <laughs> and by the way. <laughs> um, where, where was I going? I said Longview, and you said something about Hazel. And the Al. first Longview. Yeah. Oh no! So the, on, on the Longview that we didn't put out, um, there's a song that I co-wrote, in a sense, with um, Tom T and Miss Dixie. Lessons in Stone. Yeah. So that's Ken Irwin, the songwriter. How'd you co-write that one with them? When Hazel and I were down in Cuba. Sounds as if that was just... <laughs> yeah, just throw that out there. <laughs> kind of like your guys' trip to Tijuana you just tossed out on me. Right. Right. So um, Hazel was involved um, in a record, that Marion could talk about this, um, of called uh, Come All You Coal Miners, which was recorded at the Highlander Center in Tennessee um, by Guy and Candy Carawan. And it had a number, it was all coal mining songs, and one day Hazel got a call from Barbara Koppel, um, a director who was working on a film called Harlan County, USA. And she yeah, wanted yeah. Hazel to, um, to write an ending song for, um, for the film. 
and um, so she, Hazel and I went to New York and met with Car Barbara and she showed us a lot of the film and Hazel came back and um, she sort of had an idea of, of the theme but um, she started writing and um, she thought for tune she'd start off with um, Paul and Silas and uh, she wrote um, They'll Never Keep Us Down which was the theme song. And then the, um, a number of the, I think it was four of her songs were used in Harlan County, USA. And then Barbara got a call from a festival in Cuba who wanted um, Barbara to come down with, um, with the film and show it as part of the film event in Cuba. And, um, they wanted Hazel to come down as well um, to play over the credits and 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 also for an event at the um, for the for the film people. So um, that got arranged, and um, I joined Hazel. We went to New York, and then flew to Canada, and then to Cuba because you weren't allowed to fly from the U.S. at the time. And we got down there, and as part of the um, the event for all the um, the filmmakers who were showing their films from all over the world, um, there was a a toast given, and it was given by um, a Russian filmmaker, and he told this wonderful story of um, a person who was. Um, walking through, um, you haven't heard this? I have not. Okay. She has no idea where this is going. Dude. <laughs> I love it, but it's like stump the stars. Like you're trying to stump me. <laughs> She's like, where is yeah, he going on, go with this? <laughs> oh, and, 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 and I should add that, um, that we had all these wonderful drinks and all the ice, and apparently so now, we, we can't believe what he's saying now. And, and, appar and, apparent, and apparently, the the um, the citizens of Cuba had for had to forego their ice to have enough, enough ice, ice for the, for, the yeah. for this whole yeah. event. Wow, they had you know people from uh, I think it was over 160 countries at this. Wow, at this at this thing. And um, so hope the you enjoyed that ice. And um, yeah. And and he gave this toast about a person who was walking home, and he had lots of time, and he saw a pathway that he'd seen many times, and he had never taken it, but he had he had extra time, and so he decided to take it, and it wound around and went through some bushes, and he had to you know push his way through, and even got a little you know a couple of little um, scratches as he went through, and he finally came to this clearing, and um, there was this old graveyard, and um, he started looking at the stones. And he saw that all the stones in that graveyard, everybody had died. It seemed that they were born and died on the same day, sometimes two hours apart, sometimes six hours apart, sometimes 12 hours apart. And he was thinking, was this some kind of pestilence? But, 
but they were born in different years, different months. So it didn't make sense. And then he saw a, um, a little building over in the back and he went down there and there was the caretaker. And he said, you know, this is very strange. Can you explain to me why all these people born and were born and died on the same day in almost every case? He said, in this town, we mark the times that people were genuinely happy. And then the end of the toast is, and this is one of those times. Wow. And, yeah. and, and I told wow. that, you know, I told, you know, I, I, I knew it was a song, and I told that to Tom T. and Dixie, and they went back and wrote it. I don't think they nailed it, um, but it's hard to tell that story yeah. in a song in a short period yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And um, I've, uh, I've told that in the past, and my wife has used it at a, um, a wedding. Wow. Um, and the wedding didn't last very long. I mean, the marriage didn't, so we haven't. About, about as long yeah. as that tombstone thing, right? Yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's... So it was not one of those times for the people yeah, that went right. through the wedding, well, it apparently. Was, it was at the time. It was at the time. It just didn't have, just didn't have legs. But that's, that's where that came from. And it's, you know, I think it's a beautiful story. And... Um, um, and that was a very important, yeah. you know, part of uh, of Hazel's songwriting career was Harlan County, USA, yeah, which did absolutely. that year won the Academy Award for Documentary yeah. of the Year because Barbara Koppel is a brilliant documentarian. But the other thing, Ken mentioned Highlander. Yeah. And um, so we'll, you know, and the difference between different types of lefts and so yeah. forth in this country. And Highlander is a perfect example of the fact that the South has... Um, Why don't you, wouldn't you talk about... Highlander because not everybody. I will. Yeah. I will. Okay. I, the, uh, Highlander is a perfect example of how, in many ways, there are parts of the South that are, in fact, more progressive, more far left leaning, and have been around for a much longer time. Highlander has been around since the 1930s um, in a couple of different locations. Um, they lost a building a couple of years ago when some um, neo Nazis. Uh, um, uh, firebombed one of their buildings um, and left marking so that's clearly who it was but anyhow it's it's now in New Market Tennessee it started out in um, uh, another small town in Tennessee but um, it's uh, been a center for both white and left people working together um, in integrated educational settings, workshops, and many of the songs like um, We Shall Overcome actually came from the Highlander Center. Um, the Guy, Guy Carwin adopted it from the original gospel song and made it a song that was probably the most used song by the, um, the, by the, the movement. movement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and by the Black Freedom Struggle and, and Rosa Parks. Um, um, took workshops there, and so did Martin Luther King. So I mean, it's 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 been an important place for 
um, the beginnings of the labor movement in this country, as well as the black freedom struggle. Um, and it still is doing that today. I mean, yeah. um, uh, Black Lives Matter held some of their leadership groups there. And in fact, um, uh, um, IBMA even has a slight relationship because uh, it, we tapped them to find um, some folks uh, to be involved in some of the diversity um, gotcha. and inclusion um, work. And Florence Reese, who wrote um, "Which Side Are You On," was down at that oh, okay. at that um, event with uh, with Hazel. Yeah. One last question. It's like you know, picking kids you like better, but for. We, we, we've listed a lot of, we've mentioned several of the, you know, the heavy hitter rounder albums, you know, 0044 mm-hmm. and Now That I Found You and, and some of those projects. Um, you know, we got bluegrass fans listening to this this podcast. So what are some bluegrass records on rounder that you would encourage someone to go dig up or listen to that maybe... Maybe they haven't in a while, or you know, and it can be a vinyl only release one. Just give me numbers. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> oh two oh six. No, well, and, and one of the, one of the fir- one before we um, pass it over too quickly. Things in life by Don Stover. Yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, it's just like it's one of those that can just give you goosebumps. It's such a wonderful record. Um, in my opinion, even though it's not a strictly bluegrass record, any of the Norman Blake records, yeah. which were among our very first quote-unquote, more successful, better-selling records. They contain mm-hmm. in some of Norman's... I mean, he's a great songwriter, a uh, great guitar player, but the, those records contain some of his classic tunes. So you can't go wrong with those, and look at how many bluegrass groups have done them over which is the one of, Which is one of your favorites of those early Norman Blake records? Uh, the, probably the first one. Yeah, probably the very first one. Um, although... Um, um, Whiskey Before Breakfast was, yeah, you know, favorite too. The, you know, yeah, the second. Which I think is 0063, isn't it, yeah. Ken? Yeah. <laughs> You're surprising me now. Man. <laughs> yeah, but I love those Norman Blake records. But there are there are um, so many. And the Hazel and, Re- Hazel and Alice records that you mentioned are absolutely um Classic 0027, aside from Hazel's own records, which also have um, just great songs on them. So and uh, the the Wittstein brothers, um, Vern Williams band is is a favorite. Um, we I think all like Honky Tonk Bluegrass by um, Buzz Busby and Leon Morris, which I consider some of the greatest metaphysical bluegrass. Um, Longview, Johnson Mountain Boys. Um, let the whole let the whole world talk is just one of the great all time songs on yes. the dog songs. Um, you said J and B. Watch one. Water. You got any specific titles that kind of stand out if someone's looking for for one? Oh, because the, the one that has "Let the Whole World Talk" on it. The, I forget which one that called is. Let the Whole, like, world, talk. Let the yeah, whole yeah, world Talk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and I don't remember the number, but I would say that one for me. It's, you know, um, 0293 would be in there, too. Um, they were really exceptional and um, and favorites. And it was, 
you know, they were a group that we really um, grew with. Yeah. You know, and we're really close. I mean, I was, I think uh, Walt Saunders and I were, were both sort of uh, sixth members or seventh members of um, of that band. But uh, to bring it up a little bit more currently, the um, the Brother Duets record of the Gibson Brothers, yeah. in my opinion, is Brotherhood. Another, yeah. Is that what I'm yeah. Yeah. yeah, Brotherhood is a great one. Um, one of my favorites. Um, and I was just thinking, actually, the... Um, the David Grisman record that had um, uh, all of those classic bluegrass songs on it. Oh, the o- the O two five one five two. Yeah. What yeah. was the title of that? Is that the Home is Where the Heart Is yeah, one? Yeah. Yeah. That that that's the one where he has all kinds of cool special guests, like out, like Nashville Bluegrass Band yeah. helps out on that one, and uh, Red and Harley Allen help mm-hmm. out, and Rice, and that's a that's a cool project. Yeah. It's a double, right? Yep. Two disc. Yeah. And there are some that we didn't do, like uh, the Connie and Babry issue, um, an absolute favorite. Um, could go on and on. And the Bailey um, Brothers. You know, um, I've forgotten that because we did um, a Bailey Brothers reissue as part of the early days Have of you forgotten? Mm-hmm. Have you forgotten? And then we also did Danny Bailey in the... Um, Happy Valley Happy Boys. Happy Valley Boys. Um, I don't remember the title of that one, but that is also a really great record. Take me back yeah. to Happy Valley. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and now you know what Happy Valley means. Yeah. To yeah. yeah. I'm like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. <coughs> and well, you know there there are many more. I, oh, you know, I hate, totally. I hate, Hate, hate to I, really do that. I, I was meaning it more as a way that our listeners could maybe seek out yep. new records yep. and yeah. kind of just as some, some suggestions, yep. you know, yep. not necessarily as favorites, I, I, I but more the, suggestions. I, I love the record that um, Hazel did with Carol Elizabeth uh, Jones and Jenny Hawker. That's, I knew you were going to say that and I would agree. Yep. Um, yep. And it was, and it was really, really fun and got to hear them stretch out and some of the musicians, you know, do some things that, you know, that we, weren't really expecting and uh have you know pete kennedy um working on that um ron stewart i mean that was just you know there there are some sessions that just you know really stick out as you know as as great fun well and uh, and in terms of recent what we hope will be a recent classic the seldom seen record that um that Ken produced a couple yeah. of years ago because changes that, because it's got all of the yes yeah. it, it has all of these wonderful songs that were kind of hand picked yeah, yeah. to do a kind of more folk inflected you know which I think is is kind of the way JD chose a lot of his songs not from that particular area yeah yeah but um, you know bringing new music that really in a way fits perfectly with um, the singers and the sound of that particular band so I think that that's a good one. Awesome. Yeah. Thank well, you, we guys. Could, we could go on for yeah. <laughs> you got us going. Many and hours. We could go on for yeah. hours. Yes, but yeah. yeah Thanks there, for asking you know, that those, question. Uh, long yes. few records. You know the the first the first couple. Um, you know those are the, two of my favorites. Yeah. So. Right. <laughs> Don't know why. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> and of course, Ken would mention the James King records. Oh yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. So. Awesome. 
Well, thank you guys yeah. so much for the time. I really appreciate it. I know it was more than you bargained for. So, <laughs> hey, we had great fun. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. No, thank absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. How much fun was that? Thanks for joining me on the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed part two of my conversation with Ken Irwin and Marion Leighton Levy. Man, Rounder has released so many great bluegrass records over the years. Uh, be sure to join us on Facebook, Instagram, and let us know what some of your favorite Rounder albums and LPs are. I'd be curious to find out. I know if you're a bluegrass fan, uh, you've got dozens on your shelf already. Thanks so much to Lawn Chair USA for sponsoring uh, the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast. Uh, Be sure to have a chair that can handle you sitting on the edge of your seat at your next Bluegrass Festival. I know there's quite a few this fall. I'll be at Blue Highway Fest next week in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. Uh, And I'm making sure I bring my Lawn Chair USA Magnum Lawn Chair with me. That way I can sit on the edge of my seat when I'm hearing great bluegrass talent and not be afraid it's going to flip me out into the floor. You can save on your new favorite lawn chair by using code WALLSOFTIME at LawnChairUSA.com. That's LawnChairUSA.com. Use code WALLSOFTIME to save on your new favorite lawn chair. We'll be back soon with more sit-down interviews with leaders and legends in bluegrass. It's the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you enjoy podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.